0: High
1: energy, here we go. High Hiya energy.
0: energy. <laughs> Hello, Jack. Hello. God, I feel like we haven't we haven't spoken in a while. I mean, I spoke to you right before to this, so we've actually spoken very recently. But in terms of, like, you know, everything, eh, life's been busy, hasn't it? Yeah,
1: it has been a bit hectic, yeah. We missed last week. Apologies yeah, we to everybody who was waiting. By the... We waited breath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, no one, to... I'm sure no one was doing that. Oh, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I uh, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be talking to you, Dan. Um, We have a very exciting episode today, and hopefully we'll be having a couple more very exciting episodes Mm -hmm. coming up um, on a number of different topics, and hopefully some more interviews and stuff like that. But um, we, this is, yeah, Dan and I, we wanted to do this for a while. We've been wanting to have another interview. We haven't done one in forever. I think the last person we interviewed was June, was it? June Reith? yeah um, from general intellect unit which is killer go and listen to that go and listen to me not know how to plug in a microphone and sound like shit for the
1: entire time june sounds <laughs> this great. might be That's... the first interview where we've had no problems on our well end. we've no, no problems. yeah, yeah. I mean, we had problems yeah we had problems so we didn't they just might not be noticeable <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. you might be able to get away with this one <laughs> exactly yeah um so
0: yeah we did another interview it was very very fun we interviewed um one of our friends, Agata, who. Um, Is a Marxist activist in the Netherlands, um, part of a group called Communist Platform, formerly the Socialist Party. (laughs) All of that, yeah. Um, And she just kind of filled us in on the general history of left wing, modern left wing um, politics and struggles in the Netherlands, and um, where she's at now with uh, her activism, as well as what it's like being in a party or a cadre, I suppose, uh, that is inspired by Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy, which is a book Dan and I uh, like a lot. So this was a really interesting one.
1: Yeah, if people haven't read that book, definitely go and look at it. I went back; I think we both went back and had a little look at it again for this week, and um, it's always thrilling. And yeah, this this is a great interview. I'm really delighted that Agatha, Agatha could join us. Um, uh, it She gave a really interesting background both in describing um dutch politics and then the history of the socialist party and the eventual sort of uh split that happened and the formation of um yeah new marxist organizations that are coming out of that that are attempting to apply the magnerist strategy so yeah it's really fascinating to have that be happening in the world i suppose cuz um yeah, yeah. You, read, you read revolutionary strategy and find it really thrilling and then see it not really being implemented and so it's interesting to see people being inspired by that i know there are other places that where that's happening but
0: yeah yeah no it's huge it's hugely exciting it's inspiring and it's also funny you talk about the splits i just love history of like left-wing splits yeah. it's <laughs> like at, <laughs> at times they just happen for the silliest reasons and it's like come on everybody
1: I want the uh, as soon as there's a first ma- uh, mention of maoism in this podcast I just want to um, have all the listeners to envisage Jack's beaming face because obviously this is an audio platform but I got to be delighted by seeing uh, Jack's big grin at the idea of maoism and we did get to talk about the influences of maoism uh, yes. upon the ongoing political structure of the SP in the, the Netherlands so
0: the one, tr- the one true faith. Yeah. I will say it was so funny. We didn't come back to this, but the funniest. Well, oh, go ahead.
1: I'm intrigued by the farmers' party in the Netherlands. Maybe I know, yeah, the farmers. Farm the one for party. us. <laughs> that's the one. Petty bourgeois farmers. Yeah, maybe too. that's where yeah the uh, the peasant worker alliance can come from. Right? <laughs>
0: anyway. Yeah, la via campesina, exactly. Um, what, we don't actually come back to this, so I just want to bring it up now. At one point, Agata mentions that the Maoist party only let you study like two things if you were going to be a part of it. And it was you could either be a doctor, a lawyer, or work in a factory. And if you weren't one of those three things, you couldn't join the party. I just love that. It's like ah, the working class, of course, doctors, <laughs> doctors lawyers, and factory workers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's the French yeah. Revolution again.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, I don't want anyone listening to this podcast unless they're a doctor a lawyer or a factory worker. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, okay, we'll, we'll quit faffing about because we've got quite a bit to get to. Um, the structure of this interview generally goes that Agata tells us a bit about the history of Dutch politics and the history of the Socialist Party in the Netherlands, um, and then gets into the split that kind of happened with um, them kind of kicking out a bunch of communists um and um the formation of communist platform and then we kind of get into a little bit of a discussion there at the end about um what it's like organizing in a cadre um such as communist platform and about the struggles that they face and about the things that are good um and it's all very fascinating so should we just let them get to it dan
1: yeah enjoy the interview
0: all right well here we are um with Agata, um, who we've just introduced, hopefully, if Dan and I have remembered to actually do this. Um, Hello, Agata. How are you? Uh,
2: Hello, I'm fine. I I just had a bit of a cold. So if my voice changes its sound during the episode, that's why But I can speak so far.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate the disclaimer. And I also (laughs) like doing the like, hello, how are you? As if I didn't just ask you that like five seconds ago. Um, (laughs) So I guess we should get right into it. Um, It If you wouldn't mind, um, Dan and I would like to be uh, lectured on what it's like to actually be in um, a cadre or a party kind of similar to one that you're in. Um, And so without further ado, I mean, would you be able to just give us a bit of an introduction on at first the party that um, Communist Platform kind of originated from, the Socialist Party in the Netherlands, as well as just a bit of background history on... I suppose, just Dutch politics as it relates to the Socialist Party in general?
2: Okay, yes. Um, I will try to tell it maybe also a little bit about my personal history and how I joined the, the Socialist Party. So I moved to the Netherlands uh, around 10 years ago for my studies. And at first, I wasn't very aware of the political landscape here. Um, so even though I was already back then, I was quite a radical leftist, I didn't immediately join any organization. And then in 2015, uh, I became involved in the student movement. Uh, we had a lot of student protests at the time, I think, in many countries in Europe and around the world, uh, basically against uh, budget cuts, especially in humanities, social sciences. And then the, the only youth organization of a party which was actively supporting these protests, at least where I lived uh, in Utrecht, where I still live, was uh, the youth organization of the Dutch Socialist Party. So the Socialist Party is called uh, SP in short, and the youth organization is called ROAD, which means RED in English, uh, R-O-O-D. So at the time I was very impressed by the way that they were organized and what impressed me the most because I was for many years, sort of active in leftist politics. I went to different reading groups I was a part of a feminist group. I, I was volunteering at a leftist bookshop, and so on and so on. But what really impressed me in Rhodes, so in the youth wing of the SP, was that there were they had very strong discipline. And for example, if you said that you have to do something after a meeting, then at the meeting next week, people would come back to it, and he would actually, you know, like what, what happened very often in other leftist organizations, like more anarchist ones, or just not very ideologically. <laughs> uh affiliated uh, organizations not clearly affiliated what happened is uh, we would have people coming from time to time sort of saying oh i want to do that and then obviously they would be um at some point they won't come anymore and uh, the whole organization like, they would never succeed in actually achieving anything or like building la- long-lasting campaigns that's actually also what happened to the student movement in utrecht so at the first meeting during the protest, you would have like 200 people in the room. The next meeting was 50 people, then 30 people, etc. So in the end, you only had a small group. Uh, so I really felt the need for a sort of structure and discipline. And then I saw that uh, road, uh, the youth wing of the SP is a place where I can find it. So I joined it. And I also thought the name Socialist Party is very attractive. And to be honest, at, at that point, I didn't really know anything more about the party because I grew up in Poland. Um, so just the fact that the Socialist Party in the Netherlands was called Socialist Party. For me, it meant, well, okay, they're not afraid to use the word socialism. So that obviously means they're at least in some way radical. And I wasn't totally wrong in the sense that uh, the party does have quite radical roots. So it uh, it was founded in the 70s. And at first it was a Maoist, um, basically, oh, you have to cut it because I forgot the word. <laughs> <laughs> it's it split off. Sure. okay. From from here, now only you don't have to cut. Uh, it split off from the from the Marxist-Leninist Party, which was like the main communist party of the Netherlands at the time, and it was a Maoist group. And at the in the beginning, they were really a sort of a sect in the sense that you had to sell the party newspapers for two hours a day, and then you had these um, like common Maoist trends at the time that like young members of the party, and they were mostly young members would be told to either study, like if they were to study, they would study either law or medicine because they were told, okay, these are the only um, kinds of degrees that are useful for the working class, or you would go and work in a factory. Like that's basically, the party was decided what you do with your life and also where you live. Like people were encouraged to move around, you you know, like just sort of this typical strategies, trying to organize something. Um, And uh, for a while, they were just, sort of grinding on like that, like with the Maoist ideology. Then in the 80s, they started uh, I think as many Maoist groups in Europe, like with China itself becoming less and less radical, they turned away from Maoism or communism in general. And they tried to uh, gain more success, uh, win more seats, especially in local elections. And they did win seats here and there in local elections. But the first time they they won seats in the Dutch parliament, national parliament was in early nineties and they won two seats. Um, So the Dutch parliament has only 140 seats. So it's quite few seats compared to other parliaments. And there's also no electoral electoral threshold. So what you see very often is that even very small fringe parties, they get uh, at least one seat, at least one member of parliament, because it's actually quite easy to have one person elected. So that's why you have like a, A lot of what people say, weird parties, like party for animals, 50 plus or party for old people, etc. But actually, if you manage to get someone elected, and that person is a good speaker who can manage to use the parliament as a sort of scene where they uh, popularize their ideas, uh, it can be easy from this point to really grow your party. And that's what happened in the last few years. Though it's maybe a bit, uh, it was quite a rocky story, but it uh, did happen that uh, for a right-wing party in the Netherlands called uh, Forum for Democracy. They elected two people. One of them was Thierry Baudet, who is this kind of guy talking in sort of fascist uh, dog whistles, you know, about homopathic finning uh, thinning of the Dutch nation, etc. And then he basically got elected to the parliament and he started giving really weird speeches when he was speaking Latin and just being very controversial and basically based on that his movement kept growing Unfortunately, because he was so weird and controversial, uh, the movement split. But yeah, it's uh, so, so yeah, it's a, it's it's a discussion that can be held for people who are interested in it.
0: Wait, so was he, was he a member of the Socialist Party, or was he? No, something no, else? sorry, no. I, I'm just. It's like, <laughs> this but, was just some guy.
2: Yeah, he was a member of um, like a right wing think tank, and then <laughs> oh, were, no. oh god. And then they were like, "Oh, yeah, let's let's try to because, as you know, like the main." sort of populist, anti-immigrant party in the Netherlands is uh, Herit Wilders' PVV, Party for Freedom. Um, But it's it's seen as a sort of low-class, not very intellectual party. And Forum for Democracy started with this whole idea of like a renaissance of Dutch culture and democracy. And they have this logo with a sort of Greek temple of whatever on it, etc., so they start with this guy who's uh, like a thinker of some kind. Like, I think he studied philosophy from a think tank. And then he basically became popular by talking controversial, like spreading very controversial views. And then he got elected based on that because of the low lecture f- threshold. And then he became even more popular because he suddenly had all the media listening to him in the parliament. And why am I telling about this? It's because something similar happened to the SP, the Socialist Party, in the 90s, when one of the two people that got elected was the party leader, uh, since quite a while, I think early 80s, Jan Marijnissen. Uh, so he was the party chairman and he was also the leader uh, of the of the fraction, that's how you call it in English, in the Dutch Parliament. And he was a really good speaker. Like He was just very convincing, very clear ideas, uh, could debate anyone in the Parliament, and basically, thanks to his charisma and leadership skills, in a way, more like well, mostly media charisma, the party started growing. And I think, as as many uh, sort of originally more left-wing, anti-capitalist parties in the '90s, it became more and more explicitly well, not right-wing, but more and more centrist in its ideology. Then around 2000, it accepted its new ideological basis, which was called. Uh, which means like the whole human being Mm. and and it was very vague like it wasn't really written in Marxist language at all it was talking about being against brutalism so like the sort of society in which the welfare state is destroyed and people are sort of forced to each fight for their own life etc but it was it, it really wasn't formulated in explicitly Marxist terms which is really weird because this this whole shift, it happened basically within 20 years, like from the 70s to early 2000s, this party lost uh, all, all like all of its radical ideology outwardly. And the leadership of the, of the party, even though it was almost, yeah, like almost the whole leadership, it was people who were there since the beginning, who were the ones like selling Maoist newspapers for many hours every day. Uh, they also became like these more centrist, you know, like statesman-like figures. Um as the party kept growing in popularity and kept getting more and more seats. Then around 2005, there was another election. SP became very big basically because of their involvement in anti- Iraq war protests, which was a huge issue at the time. Uh, they had around 25 seats uh, out of 140 is so quite a lot. Um, and then at some point, like there, there were even you know, like SP was really seen as a party that could Form the government, and now we, we reach sort of another crucial feature of the Dutch politics, which is because we have so many parties in the Dutch parliament. Uh, there is basically no chance that you will be, you know, that you, only one party will form the government. So there is basically always a government coalition. If you want to be in the government, you have to be in a coalition with another party. And for the last decades, it was also true, or for the last, I don't know, since the two thousands at least. And was also true that if you want to be in a coalition, you have to be in coalition with the largest uh, centrist right party, uh, Feva Day, which is, yeah, I, I would compare it a little bit, like uh, if you look at the UK, a little bit to the conservatives, but it's a bit more centrist, I guess. Like it, it's really ideologically, it's really not Christian or it's not really right wing when it comes to like moral issues, but it is economically just very neoliberal. That that's what it is, uh, and it's uh, this party. Of course, also has the prime minister Mark Rutte, who has been the prime minister of the Netherlands forever, or at least for a very long time. So basically, uh, and the last governments were always formed with this party as a part of it, as the strongest party.
0: Could I just ask real quick if you could give us just like a quick rundown of what the kind of political situation is right now in the Netherlands? Because I know, like, a few years ago it seemed like I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Geert Wilders was like the boogeyman of, you know, he was kind of like the Nigel Farage. He was kind of like, you know, take your pick of any like right-wing demagogue. Yeah. Um, it does, does that kind of right-wing uh, populism, I suppose, still get kind of traction still? Yeah.
2: I I, I would say like when I'm, because to, to be honest, like, sorry, I'm telling a bit of this long story, but as I said, like since 2015, more or less, I was a member of the SP. So the, during the whole time, that time, like these few years, I was keeping up really with the Dutch parliamentary politics, etc. Because I was myself a member of a party, it was in the parliament. I have to say, in the last year or two, I'm much more involved with like leftist bottom-up organizations. So I, I, I'm not that aware of everything that's happening. So maybe I will say something very untrue. But my impression is that the, the current state of the politics is, of course, that favorite days so the centrist neoliberal party is still the strongest by far. But of course, a huge issue last year were the farmers' protests, so we probably also heard something about it, because of reducing nitrogen emissions. I think it's nitrogen in English, uh, which was a favorite Day decision to basically... VVD, I don't know how to pronounce it in English. uh, To basically um, introduce certain regulations, which would mean that these farmers who are a very strong interest group in the Netherlands, that they would... Lose a lot of profits, they would have to downscale, etc. It was a very unpopular decision in the countryside, especially. There were huge protests, and now there's also, like, as like, as I said in the Netherlands, there are many funny-sounding single-issue farm uh, parties. There's also a farmers' party emerging, and it's also very high in the polls, obviously. So that's what's changed in the landscape. Uh, Herod Wilders is still there; like he still has a lot of supporters. So like he's he, sort, he sort of never really went away. Like as I said, you have to sort of new more sophisticated, or at least they wanted to be more sophisticated, right-wing populist party, anti-immigration, anti-EU. So that's foreign from democracy, with theory about that. But uh, them being in the parliament and <clears throat> in the policy doesn't mean that Geert Wilders and his uh, paper that they really lost that much of support. You know, like so it's, it's the right just so strong. Uh, what what changed maybe in the okay? So so like uh, when I was talking about the SP. Mm. What's changed is in the early 2010s, there was a government formed with uh, the old Labour Party. So that's favor Day. And it used to be, uh, until early 2010s, it used to be a strong party with a lot of seats, so sort of seen as the reasonable left-wing option. Uh, so what's changed in the last decade is that they, after they were in coalition with favor Day, that they lost a lot of votes. Like they went from like 35 seats to I think nine seats in the 2000, uh, yeah two thousand seventeen elections, and they are still quite weak. Uh, there's green links green left who are also yeah around I think five to ten seats. There's SP still has around uh, eight to nine seats. So in the polls, so all that I'm saying is the seats they have in the polls. Um, yeah. So the the landscape, you know, like my my general impression, but I I think you could say it about you know like parliamentary politics anywhere in the West right now is that it just seems more and more fragmentized, if that's a word. So, you know, like with people really divided by their sort of cultural... I don't want to just say class interest because what's... Like these divisions, I, I wouldn't really say that they're um, alongside real class divisions because the level of class consciousness right now in the Netherlands, I think in most societies, is so low that it's very hard to speak about it. But it's sort of like superficial... Lifestyle cultural divisions, you know, so in the Netherlands, like if, if you have the higher educated people who live in the Randstad, so Randstad is like Utrecht, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, and like the, you know, the big cities in the West. Uh, they are, of course, worried about climate change. They support LGBT rights, of course, as most people in the Netherlands, et They are well, They're welcoming to immigrants. Like they would vote for Hunlings, PvDA. There's also another party I didn't mention called... D sixty six. It's like Democrats sixty six, founded in nineteen sixty six, I guess. And they're like a very liberal party, which is someone's, sometimes seen as a left wing party, but they're basically like favorite days of the century is the no liberal party, but for higher educated younger people. Um, so so yeah, like you would basically who you would vote for would be very determined by who you work with, like who's accepted, and like in most higher educated. Working environments, people wouldn't really admit to work, to voting for Wilders or about that, etc. Um And at the, at the same time, if you live in the countryside, like if you went to the Dutch countryside this summer, which I don't do very often, but I had to go there for the summer school of uh, the youth organization, was giving a talk. Then you see like all these, you know, like the symbol of the farmers movement is the Dutch flag turned upside down, which I think is the best. Yeah, I think it's the best political symbol I've seen. I, I don't know how long. It's super easy. You know, it, it literally means like you want to throw over the stream Drain the swamp. Yeah, but it's also it's also very easy because everyone has a flag at home, right? Because you need it for like state holidays or whatever. So it's very easy to just hang it outside of your house upside down and people immediately know what's going on.
0: Okay, so I think maybe... Um, now that we've kind of just discussed a bit, I suppose, about the Socialist Party, I was actually going to say, Dan, really quickly, I know that you also were involved in kind of the student movements, I think, around the same time. And I was just thinking about how similar a lot of, Agato, what you're saying is to like, well, just politics everywhere, right? Just about the state of everything. But um, I don't know for you, Dan, have you noticed that that's kind of how things have tracked slightly in the UK? Has it I mean, been I guess, relatively
1: mean, I guess the high point for the student movement in the UK was earlier than what you were describing Although or at least the portion of the student movement that I was involved in was the sort of twen- end of 2010, beginning of 2011 around uh, the increase in tuition fees here and the the early years of the conservative government. And then I wasn't so involved with it as that period of time went on. Um, but I suppose there probably is a parallel in the sense that a lot of the student movement here then went on to be quite significant in the rise of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. What I was sort of thinking was that the, there's a parallel between the uh, the SP, the Socialist Party in the Netherlands and what we would have had perhaps uh, with Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party, i.e. like a slightly more ethically minded or moralistic uh, socialist party rather than one that was drew its sort of principles from um, a more economic understanding and analysis and critique. Um, and that seems to be the schism that, you, that, that came about in the SP, if I'm correct, is this distinction between like trying to take a more Marxist line and um, incorporate an economic analysis. Is that correct? Okay. Um, two
2: things I would like to say here. So firstly, I wouldn't really overstate the role of the student movements in the Netherlands. Okay. I wouldn't say that it was as big as momentum in the UK, which I guess was inspired by student movements or whatever. But um, I, I feel like it was mostly a moment for like Dutch leftist liberal elites. So I think people like me who were involved in these movements and then went on to join actual leftist organizations and become politically active in this way, I think it was a tiny, tiny minor- minority Like, when I look at all the people who were involved in it, it was mostly, like, the sort of typical, you know, like, woke, we would say nowadays, students, which still was great because usually you see these people just, like, reading critical theory and, like, dying their hair blue or whatever, and, like, not doing much for politics. But at this time, they were actually, like, organizing, thinking, like, oh, should we collaborate with anarchists or Trotskists or SP, whatever, you know? Like, it was really a political moment, but it didn't really stay that way. I think, like, I'm a bit pessimistic about student and university politics in general. Like, now I'm a PhD student. I'm almost done with my PhD. And I think just, like, the nature of academia that, you know, like, I was a student in Utrecht. I was active here. Then I graduated. Okay. You know, like, you're just sort of, from a very materialist point of view, you're not really involved in it anymore. Then I was a PhD in Delft. I tried to, you know, be active in the union there. I couldn't really organize my colleagues because they knew, like, after two, three years, they would be gone, you know? And it's like, I feel like the, the only time when you can really do student activism, like university activism in an optimal way, is when you're already a professor. By this time, you're old, uh, not very <laughs> invested in changing the nature of university. So I know I'm a bit pessimistic about it. But uh, I, uh like as, w- w- what I said is that in the Netherlands, it was mostly a moment for the elites, because I feel like some of these people from sort of really quite privileged backgrounds, you know, like sort of fancy... Going to the proper high schools uh, in the Netherlands, then to the universities, studying philosophy or whatever backgrounds. Because in the Netherlands also, it's like going to university. I, I think it's a more privileged thing to do in a lot of other than a lot of other countries, because you don't just have the, like for example in Poland, that you just have the distinction between like the more, more vo- vocational education and in the university. In the Netherlands, it's three levels, so it's like the mo- most practical one when you really learn very specific jobs, then the top level, well, it's seen as a top level, it shouldn't be, but it's seen as a top level, is the very theoretical university education, so that would be the universities, like the one I did, which you most understand as universities, and in the middle, you have the universities of applied sciences, so these are sort of like in between the very vocational schools and theoretical ones, so you would see a lot of people go to the middle ones, and then, you know, these, these were not the ones involved in the protests, but okay, because I'm going on a digression again. Uh, but uh, so, so I saw even recently some people on the, on the cover of like a liberal left Dutch magazine talking about revolution being against capitalism. I got really interested. I thought, okay, I want to buy it and read about these people. I want to name them right now. They're also probably not listening to this podcast. But they were saying, yeah, we're really involved in these student protests and what they are doing right now. Like, of course, working for some NGOs, which is very uh, typical for this type of people then writing extremely vague books about protests without really explicit references to Marxist theory, Marxist tradition, you know, like really left-wing socialism, revolutionary strategies, or so something we'll hopefully talk about today, but only sort of these very vague ideas of movements and uh, democracy, whatever, like this Chantal move, like uh, postmodern uh, ideas about involvement. So I would say like that, that's mostly a tradition of the Dutch student movements, you know, like it was... It was nice and the goals were good, but it was very vague and it was basically destroyed by what a lot of left is destroyed nowadays, so just being very vague, uh, influ- influenced by postmodern theory, not being able to have a clear strategy to rename really what they should be doing. Um, then the other thing you said, which I forgot a bit, uh, um, oh yeah, the conflict within the SP. Okay, I- I'll just finish the, what I wanted to say about SP and then we can go on to... Maybe more vague discussion. So the conflict was, you know, because the the organization I'm in right now, Communist Platform, it started as more of a blog, you know, like a small group of people who met on RevLeft.com. Maybe some of the listeners remember RevLeft. It's like a forum. I don't know if you remember that.
0: I don't, unfortunately. I'm a loser. Okay. I, I was so never I,
1: particularly online, so... No, no. <laughs> that's a lie.
0: But, 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 but
2: to be completely honest, I, I think I think you're both like around my age, so like almost 30, just over 30. I I'm think 19. You, <laughs> I think we are like a bit too young to really like be the refleet generation because I think it was really big like in 2000s, not in 2010s, because I joined it when I was like 16 or 17 and by then it was already a bit dying. Um, But still, it was like a left-wing forum, which was, with with, with the the nice thing was that it was for all kinds of tendencies. So, of course, like 90% of the forum would be different leftist tendencies arguing with each other. But at least they were all in one place. So, I think it's always positive. Uh, And some Dutch people met on RevLeft. And they were all, uh, they were united by their affiliation, which was with a British group called uh, CPGB PCC. So Communist Party of Great Britain Provisional Provisional Central <laughs> Committee. Yes. Provisional Central Committee. Um, and uh, yeah, so the of course a member of this party group would be Mike McNair who wrote Revolutionary Strategy, to which we'll refer in the discussion today. And these people were united based on common approaches, ideas, and they decided that they should join the SP with the idea that McNair also writes about that, you know, this is a place where most, like, it's it's the highest expression of the workers' movement of some sort of class consciousness in the Netherlands at the moment. And that was true, like, because at the time when they did that, in 2014, around that time, I think 2013, SP was really, the Socialist Party in the Netherlands, was really the place where you would go if you really wanted to try to organize the working class. It was a place where people who were active in the union would go. Also, certain Trotskyists, like, officially, you wouldn't really talk about it out loud, but there were people from different Trotskyist groups in it. There were also a lot of normal people. There were also a lot of people who weren't radical at all, but there were just social democrats which were attract- who were attracted by the parties and the austerity politics. But over the years, the conflicts within the party became sharper and sh- sharper, because on the one hand, you had, of course, again, the youth, I would say, like, yeah, you can say, of course, that always these youth wings, youth organizations will be a bit more radical, but I think that was a big trend also in the last decade or so, that also in the UK, as you said, and these young people, maybe they were hit harder by the, by the crisis, um, you know, raising costs of study, etc. like you really saw as a younger generation that this welfare state that you were used to, it's, it's not really there for you, even less than, than it's there for your parents' generation or whatever. Um, so, so, basically, young people, some of them at least, because some of them remained very loyal to the party, started demanding a different different direction from the party leadership. At the same time, uh, the old leader, Jana Marajnesen, who was quite old, retired from party leadership. Uh, not immediately, but a few years later, the, the party, um, the, 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 the chairwoman of the party fraction in the parliament, uh, was his daughter, Lilian Marinissen, which again was, you know, I was already a party member at the time. The way it happened was very suspicious to me because basically uh, Lilian she was very young at the time. I think she was just 30, maybe, maybe a little bit older, her early 30s. And she was working for the um, the Dutch left-wing um, trade union association, FNV. And basically, if you looked at her, life at her whole career, you could see that it was the most stereotypical SP career you could think of. So like, she was in the Hemainterat, in the Municipality Council, as a young woman, then she studied politics, then she went on to work for the trade unions as an organizer, and not just in any sector, but in healthcare. And healthcare was always a huge topic for the SP, like really, like next, yeah, I think the biggest topic I can think of, uh, with huge campaigns dedicated to changing the healthcare system to make it more public again, because so now it's this weird construction in which you have to have a health insurance, but it's actually private insurance companies. Um, and then at first, she was put very high on the election list for the parliament elections in 2017. She was put in the, on the third place on the list, so of course she would be elected, even though she wasn't even a member of parliament before. And then in the coming months... Like you could just see that she was promoted more than anyone else on the social media, even though you know, like she wasn't the leader of the fraction at the time. And then the leader of the fraction, Emily Gummer, stepped down, and then there was election for the for the new leader of the fraction who who served like the face of the party in the media to the outside world. And then she was elected. But like the way it happened, it was just all very weird. Because for example, she knew that uh, th- that uh, will step down like many months in advance so she could really sort of like prepare. Her standing among her colleagues because she like the the leader of the faction is elected by other MPs, so it's only a group of like you know ten to fifteen people. I don't remember exactly, and they are voting. And the other candidate, uh, Sadat Karabulut, who was known as a more of left wing candidate, um, also she's of a Kurdish origin. Uh, she only knew that the woman would step down like three days in advance, and of course you know like the party leadership tried to defend itself said... Yeah, the only reason was because Lilian as number three on the list was like in the leadership of the parliamentary fraction. So that's why she knew that earlier. Yeah, but it was just a very weird situation. So, yeah, so so a lot of people were critical. It also looked terrible to the outside world because it looked like, you know, this sort of North Korea situation when the daughter of the leader becomes the new leader. And it was just really difficult to explain it. And the funny thing is, like, we had this chat. At this time, I was already on the... Board of the party uh, fa- party branch in Utrecht. I had this chat on WhatsApp and we were like, What is happening, basically? And then the same day I was called, and I think everyone who was critical was called by the uh, chairman of the local party branch in Utrecht, who was, of course, working for the party as some sort of media guy and very loyal. And they were all being told, Yeah, you know, why, why, yeah, I, I wanted to repeat some of the stuff that he said because it's like, even after all these years, on podcast in english i feel like i'm sharing some insider information that I shouldn't share but basically the gist of it was yeah lilian is a very nice person she'll be a very good leader of the parliamentary fraction you shouldn't criticize her so much i was like okay yeah like basically we weren't really allowed to
0: criticize her in this way but what and so did nobody else get those phone calls like the people who weren't critical or was it basically just the people somehow that were critical got them
2: yeah, I think the critical people got them, because wow. this is the, that, that's the ones I talked to, because they, what would you say to the other ones? I think a lot of people were just like, okay, it looks weird, but we want to support this party which fights for better healthcare and better housing and whatever, you know? Like, I think that's mostly the attitude I got from people who weren't very critical about was it. I don't think...
1: Was there something about the structure of the party that led to that to happen, or do you think it's a feature of this the tendency toward charismatic leaders in Dutch politics anyway, then led over into this kind of like, as you say, North Korea style nepotism.
2: <laughs> yeah, but uh, Lillian herself wasn't very charismatic. I think it's, it's, it's more like now because people are now saying like, oh, she's giving good speeches. Okay, she's been fraction leader for what, like almost seven years right now, you know, of course, like in all these years, she learned how to give good speeches. Like if she didn't, I, I don't know who wouldn't. Um, but but I think you, you, when you talk about party structure, yeah, it, it does point to the problem because like, there are even some people, you know, like writing their political science thesis about the history of the SP. And uh, one of the takes that they have about how this party has been run is that basically there was always a sort of network of people who are holding the power in the party and they are all sort of, you know, like since the times of this very early, almost sect-like existence of the party, a couple of families who all know each other spend a lot of time together all live in Oss, which is like this small, well, not very small, but like middle-sized city in the southern Netherlands where the party started. Um, well, started as a strong organization. And uh, Lilian will be someone basically from this network, someone who was very well known in this network. And so I think when, when we talk about the structure of the party, it's mostly that these people... They don't really trust newcomers. Uh, Maybe now now is the moment to say more about, you know, because I I was saying the party started as a sort of Maoist sect, but then it abandoned its uh, radical leftist ideas. But I don't think it ever really abandoned the structure and the customs, which is funny because it's something that I really only discovered, you know, like basically after I became active for the party and only after some time I became more and more critical. For example, at the meetings of the youth wing, we always had like critique, self-critique sessions in the beginning. So like in the beginning of every meeting, like you would basically say, okay, um, I'm sorry that I didn't design this flyer. Like I was supposed to design a flyer and didn't do that, you know, like like, before someone would criticize you, you would criticize yourself. But then it was also a moment to say, and oh, by the way, I don't know, Bart said that he would, organize these people and tell them to be there at this hour. But he forgot to do that, you know, like.
0: Was that was that useful, like in any way, or was it just kind of like demoralizing? Uh,
2: well, you know, I think if you, for me, because I just, jo- if you, like as in any organization, if you join the organization, as a new person, you don't usually start with really questioning what's happening. So, and as, as I said, I was very impressed by the fact that there were even, you know, like very clearly divided tasks in this youth wing and that people actually tried to at least do the things that they said they they would do so i I think it was it was useful because but of course psychologically it's a very difficult thing to talk about because i think the whole function is that like you 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 feel that you should criticize yourself before anyone criticizes you but that basically means that you're always very critical of yourself so I think that's that's why I've heard some people describe a sort of sect-like behavior, because you're basically like always judging yourself quite harshly, because it's not only that you have like your own criteria according to which you judge your own political activity. So let's say I was supposed to design a flyer, but I was very busy with my school or work or whatever. I was sick, so then you know I, I understand that, but then you always have to think, okay, but what what will the rest of the group think about that? So. You're always judging yourself, not only according to what you think about yourself, but what the group might think. Um, Yeah, I, I you know, like in my current organizations, we don't do that.
0: <laughs> one, one last thing on the self-criticism sessions, because I find this fascinating. If you haven't messed up at all, do you just have to make something up or can you just not say No, no,
2: no, no, no. It, it, It wasn't like we would go.
0: Yes, oh, okay. Go. <laughs> no. That's how I would do it. <laughs>
2: No, I, I, ideally, I mean, I mean, the whole goal would be that you're not mentioned during the session. So, yeah.
0: Okay, that makes more sense.
2: Because the the whole idea is that if you mess up, then it will be mentioned either by so so that's also why you would say it to yourself because you would rather say it to yourself and say I didn't do that, but that's because I was sick or busy or whatever before someone says oh, but she didn't do that. So yeah. So that was one thing. The other approach was something called uh, mass line, which. I think it's called, yeah, I don't know how it's called in English, but it's basically this idea that you go to the mass, the masses of people and then you talk to them and then you get your political ideas from them, which I think is a very weird idea, which I see all the time. Like also when I read about uh, like the Chinese culture revolution and so on, you know, like the idea that the party is just a sort of vessel and then representing the masses, but and the masses decide everything. I, I think it's a bit very you know, like there are some people very fascinated with this idea, like you the French philosopher and so on. But I always feel like it's a bit like it's it's not very genuine. I, I I mean, in the end you're the one controlling the message. Even if you claim that you get inspiration from the masses, that's what you saw in SP all the time, that you know, like people would claim, oh, that's what we've heard from people talking to them in the neighborhoods, on the streets, whatever. But obviously it was a group of people associated with the party leadership, like the literal spin doctors in the party leadership who choose a certain narrative because they would think that that's the narrative that brings them the most votes. And I think that's actually the, the, the worst, like one of the biggest negative aspects of the party as it was in the last few years before I was expelled, is that it was like all this focus on gaining more votes, which of course is typical for how this type of parties function in our parliamentary systems. But it really killed any sort of vision in the party because, which again can be said for many parties, because it was just like constantly flip-flopping and then they were like, oh, you see Wilders getting support. We should be like Wilders, but less racist, basically. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, or you would have like this literally, literally people drawing the political compass and being like, see, this party is here, this party is here. Here's there's a, Here there's a gap. And the gap was basically where you would have people who are sort of like socially conservative, but economically left-wing or going towards redistribution. So that's where SP tried to fit in to some extent. So they were also quite euroskeptical, so critical of recent migration from European Union, which for me as someone half Polish was raised in Poland was sometimes quite difficult to, um, you know, like, navigate within the party. But, yeah, so, you know, but it was all done with this idea of gaining votes and also reaching people who are not voting yet because they're disillusioned with politics, which is a very no- noble idea, actually. But the, the way the SP went about it, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, there's a fine line between this kind of, like, postmodern maybe idea of well, maybe there just isn't even a class interest, man. And maybe there's just nothing like the working class, man. It's just like nothing. And like actually trying to, you know, pull up your, like, put on your britches and like actually say, no, there are actually things that unite the working class. There is a working class interest and we need to actually represent that and kind of move beyond and recognize where there are prejudices that might exist within the working class and move beyond them in kind of this general class interest, kind of trying to build our organizations around that. Um, It can be very tricky, though, because then, yeah, sometimes you do just fall into this, like, well, let's just go and see what the average Joe down the street is saying. And it's like, well, the average Joe on the street might not be saying something that's necessarily even in their best interests. So you do actually have to have, you know, like a party line. And obviously, like in McNair's book, he talks about how there needs to be open room for debate and all of these things and allow for factions and all of that. Um, But. Yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit critical of that kind of stance of just like, let's just go to the people, man. <laughs>
2: well, the, the the problem I actually think it's good that you mentioned the working class because I think at the, sort of the center of this problem is that the SP didn't really have a clear idea of the working class. Rather, it had this very confused, again, like postmodern lifestyle idea of the working class. Like there was a, a former. Chairperson of the branch in Rotterdam who left the party at some point uh, and wrote a blog post in which basically, like, w- one of the main points was what the SP sees as the working class is an older uh, Dutch white guy in a pub somewhere, you know, in Brabant or whatever, who doesn't like immigrants, who just wants to, you know, get healthcare, like this this type of thing. Like, and it really, of course, no one would really say it explicitly because the Netherlands is quite a liberal cosmopolitan country but it was the implication that's also the implication that they're standing up for these normal dutch people against these cosmopolitan elites which are very visible in the netherlands like if you go to amsterdam or the hague you see all these people who are like working for international corporations or for political institutions who are like obviously really benefiting from the netherlands basically being like a how do you call it, like a tax paradise, you know, like that's why we have a lot of companies here, a lot of expats, a lot of people who basically uh, treat the, the the Dutch cities as sort of amusement park, really pretty places. But then you go to Dutch suburbs and they're a bit depressing. Um, I actually, what I appreciate a lot is that with the SP, um, something I didn't mention yet, but a part of like the huge discipline uh, that they... Sorry, I think there's... <laughs> football game going on so oh, all these fireworks <laughs> going yeah. up. Um, a big part of this discipline is that we're like constantly in action. And also also me, you know, like for example for the election we were literally on the streets talking to people, like knocking on doors, canvassing like free three days a week, you know? And in election time. In the normal time you would go at least once a week to talk to people. And it was exhausting. And it didn't really lead to many successful campaigns or whatever like from time to time you know like in one neighborhood in Utrecht we managed to like have a campaign to make the streets safer because the municipality wouldn't listen to these people because they were from like one of the districts which was sort of neglected uh, poor a lot of immigrants etc so there are some success stories but in most cases like you would just spend a lot of time talking to people and I don't think like the whole idea would that it was that you would make them active, like active citizens, and maybe some of them SP members and set up successful campaigns and so on. But Then like 90%, 95% of cases, they weren't successful, but at least people like me who are now active in left-wing politics still did talk to a lot of these people. So yeah, and then, and then you learn a lot. Like you learn, I think the biggest truth is that most people just really don't understand politics because they're just too tired. Mm-hmm. Sorry for my computer. They're just too tired, too overwhelmed to follow it. And you should never, never assume that like people know what you're talking about when you're talking about politics. Like you have to start explaining the most basic things, which is a big opportunity for us because like we would go to some sort of you know like high schools, like the more, most vocational ones, with a survey, and then be like, oh, we're from the SP, and then these teenagers would be like, oh, lol, you're the communists, and like, well, actually not. Well, We sort of were, but the SP wasn't. Okay. So, like, that, that's the opportunity to talk about communism and, like, try to challenge their worldview. What also happened to me, like, I, I would very often talk to people, like, yeah, I vote for Wilders. And, uh, you know, like, even though I, they can hear that I'm speaking Dutch with an accent, they still talk to me about that. that, that that's also quite interesting, I think. Like, you know, like, that, that, that you talk to a lot of people in real life and then, like, they won't really, or at least it never happened to me um they won't really be hateful to you to your face like they would still talk to you um whereas if you go online of course then you would just you just see this all out hate and division so i think there's something to be said for all these people just say oh just go talk to each other but of course it's not realistic that it will actually happen on large scale but we try to do it to some extent yeah
0: yeah, it's, it's also just like an idea of energy, right, too. It's like, where are you going to invest? You, you have like a finite amount of energy when you're organizing. Where are you going to invest it? And trying the same thing over and over is, you know, that's like the definition of insanity, right? And obviously it can give you tangible results at some point going around and just speaking to people and canvassing a lot like that, but also just kind of proving to the working class through your actions and through what you're standing up for um, will go kind of a lot further. I think. Um, So maybe we can get into now kind of a little bit about um, communist platform, about the difference between how communist platform organizes and how the socialist party organizes, if that's cool. Yeah. So the
2: communist platform for a
0: long time, it was mostly
2: a blog, you know, so these people, they met on the rev left, they decided, Oh, we go into SP. We're going to advocate for Marxist views within the SP without just being entries because there were a tiny group of people. And to be honest, like, there are parts of the reason why I joined the SP, although I wasn't involved with them at the time, because as I said, I was already quite radically left-wing. Like Basically, I was 17, I've read the Communist Manifest. I was like, whoa, this makes sense. And since then, I'm just like a Marxist. But um, so when I joined, uh, when I was acting in the student movements and I thought about joining Road, I talked to people in my local Road group, and I've heard some of them were Marxists. And I didn't know that at the time, but they were actually... People who ended up being involved in the communist platform. Uh, so, then being there was a big reason for me to join. I was like, well, it's a socialist party. Of course, their official politics aren't that radical, but there are many Marxists inside the party. After a while, it turned out there weren't that many Marxists. But there were still quite a few Marxists or people who are at least more radical than the official party line. The communist platform for many years was just like writing their analysis, like basically the analysis of the Dutch politics of the SP of other leftist organization, uh, fr- organizations from the perspective of this like second international Karl Kautsky inspired politics that McNair also describes in revolutionary strategy, um, which I think is a great text, especially for people who have been involved in leftist politics for a while. Like even today, when I was rereading the last chapter to prepare for this podcast so was like well this is just really really clear to read you know it's very dense like every sentence is very dense but if you have any experience with leftist politics it just really makes sense so I'm, I'm, I'm really really like to promote this book um so these people from cp they were just writing articles basically and then the moment during which 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 caused them to become more organized is basically the the tensions With an SP, as I said, like with this youth being more radical, people being unhappy with Lillian and being the leader, there were tensions rising up. There were also people who were unhappy about the refugee policy, uh, the official policy of the SP, which was that the refugees should be mostly um, handled in the asylum centers, which I think would be um, translation, in their own countries, or well, not in the Netherlands. Basically, the policy was to keep them out of the Netherlands, and there were a lot of people within the SP who were against it. They sort of started organizing as a group, which was literally called the group, which means the group within the party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how, you know, like non-affiliated they tried to be, like they call themselves a group. It's mostly old uh, people involved in the refugee movements. So the, the, there were like some signs of conflict. But uh, so the so communist platform was also becoming more active, like writing more, um, attracting some new members who were also critical of wh- where the SP was going. Also people like me who were involved for many years who were seeing these uh, undemocratic structures within the party. Something that really bothered me was how within the SP you re- weren't really allowed to communicate between different local branches. So we as uh, younger people, members of ROAD, of course we knew each other because we were members of ROAD. So, so why ROAD was seen as dangerous, but for older people, there was basically no way to see people from other branches except for regional conferences, which were well known as extremely boring, long, and no one wanted to go to them. So to be just for the province of Utrecht and Flevoland and without any interesting discussions. Or the National Congress, which was once a year, was no time for discussion. There was limit for limit to I think 30 seconds or one minute per branch to defend your uh, amendments that you would make on the program we were working on or whatever. So there was basically no place for discussion. And if you wanted to talk to people from other branches, for example, there were attempts to make some amendments to election programs to make it less euroskeptical, like a bit more pro-EU, or at least seeing EU as a useful tool instead of something that we have to be really against. Um, the party really wasn't happy with that we were communicating with other branches because there was this opportunity to... Um, you know, like you could either send in an amendment as a branch, or you could get uh, 50 signatures from members from different branches. And at some point, I think they like sort of self-deleted this option to have these signatures of you know, like it wasn't mentioned anywhere on the website or in the um, basically how to call it, like in the rules of the party. So yeah, so so, so that was very annoying. That's 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 I think this. This lack of internal democracy is what finally pushed me to get more involved in the communist platform like start I knew these people personally, but to you know sort of officially affiliate myself um although these people like they were operating under pseudonyms, so for example, all the articles on the website were written under pseudonyms because basically you knew if you were critical of the party, you were going to be expelled. so they knew that still they they basically organized more and more people around themselves. What finally was the catalyst of the conflict was that Lilian Marijnissen said in a TV interview that she doesn't exclude the possibility of forming a government coalition with FvD. So again, again, as I said before, the Netherlands sort of accepted if you want to be in the government, you have to form a coalition of the FvD, the centrist the no liberal party. But SP always said that they're never going to do that, which made sense because FvD is the party responsible for all the austerity, budget cuts to the welfare state, basically destroying the remnants of that welfare state, etc. Uh, and Pavey Day out, the Labour Party, was in coalition with Pavey Day for many years. All they gained was losing a lot of support, didn't manage to really uh, enforce, like really execute any of their own policies. So um, soon after Lilian's interview, and by the way, her statement, of course, wasn't really consulted with the rest of the party in any way which is something that also happened a lot in the SP, that, you know, like, you had a lot of official ways to discuss policy, but if someone in the parliamentary faction decided they are going to say something, they just did that. Uh, Same with campaigns. They weren't really consulted with the party as such. Then there was a a general meeting of the youth wing, and at this general meeting, uh, there was a... how do you call it in English? A motion? Can you call it a motion? Like...
0: Yeah, motion. I think
2: that makes sense. Yeah, there there was a motion accepted by the general meeting, uh, which basically said that the youth wing speaks out against such plans for a coalition government with liberal parties, and that really infuriated the party leadership because they were like, "Why is youth? Why is the youth wing organization road speaking against the mother organization, mother party, even though most youth organizations in the Netherlands were independent?" SP never wanted an independent youth organization. They had a couple of attempts at youth organizations in the past, the problem was always that they really tried to keep them under control because they, I think people in in the leadership of the the party knew about the sort of disruptive potential of the youth organizations. So that's why they were always very controlling of them. And basically this statement made at the general meeting made them very worried. And they decided to get rid of the people who were responsible for that. They basically decided that the communist platform is responsible for that based on the critical articles which were published on the Communist Platform website. And then they expelled six people who they identified as the leaders of Communist Platform. The way they identified them is basically went to the WordPress website, which was hosting the Communist Platform articles, and they tried to log in using different emails or login names. And unfortunately, there was a bug on the website, which basically, like when you were logging in, if you used an incorrect email address it would tell you your email address is incorrect and your password whatever but if you use the correct email address and not uh, and, and just an uh, incorrect password it would tell you your password is incorrect but it wouldn't tell you that the email was incorrect so in this way they identified six people who actually used to log into the website uh, and I, I can say now i guess i don't think there's anyone who must be listening or i mean no one cares at this point these people they were CP members, uh, but they weren't, like, some of them were in the leadership, in the, on the board of the organization or whatever, but many of them were just people who were doing like IT for the website or were the editors of the articles, whatever. <laughs> so they were just sort of random people to some extent. Uh, they were expelled. This was the beginning of the conflict because um, many people rallied against the ones who were expelled also. I did that in Utrecht because people who were expelled were also on the local board, they were our comrades since many years uh, it also left to I, I will just say it very quickly basically within half a year Road wasn't official youth organization of the SP um, because they, they chose as the as the chairman of the youth organization, one of the guys that was expelled, despite him being expelled and the SP just couldn't accept that
0: so th- that's more or less what happened. Um, and so re- were you one of these people that got expelled? Later, yes. Okay. <laughs> but, so they, they, before we get into that, they just expelled six people from the Socialist Party for yeah. literally just being like, maybe we don't go into a coalition. Or I would imagine it was because they're communists, right? And they wanted to actually get yeah, rid of the communists in so, the party. But that was so, the reason?
2: the official reason was the double membership. So officially, according to the party rules, um, you weren't allowed to be a member of SP and another party at the same time. It was mostly a rule used, you know, like in local elections, double loyalty, whatever. But in general, they were just really against the idea of double loyalty to any other organization. So uh, basically, they were expelled from membership of Communist Platform. There was also... Mentioned that they were damaging the party, but that was you know like more difficult to prove. So it was basically double membership. And in the next few months, like basically, um, we tried to organize opposition. We tried to then organize a Marxist faction within the party called Marxist Forum, uh, which would fight the fight for the expelled people to be accepted back. Which would fight for roads to be accepted back in the, into the party. We were running for board elections of the national board of the party of the SP. Yeah, I ended up with all of us getting expelled. And as I said, you know, like in the beginning it was six people, then it was some more, then like a year later, hundreds hundreds of people were expelled. So at some point. Really? Yeah, I I think around 200 people in total got expelled because at some point it was just anyone, you know, I got expelled for both being a member of the youth organization because at this point because youth organization was not a youth organization, more officially of the party, they also, they passed a statement in the like party council of the SP saying that Road is a party, like a political party, in order to be able to expel people for this double membership rule, which is absurd.
0: And so was- at that point, they were expelling people, not just for being a member of communist platform. No, no, no. Was-
2: it was also for being a member of Road And most people who were expelled weren't members of communist platform. communist platform doesn't have that many members. Um, so it was just anyone who was really critical, who was active for either Marxist forums or the faction attempt, or wrote the youth wing organization, which used to be the official youth wing organization. A lot of people also left. Because as I said, like there were a lot of people critical of the SP because of their refugee policies, because of not paying enough attention to climate, uh, because of not, not having a vision, not being Marxist enough, not being democratic enough. Like... A lot of reasons basically to leave the party and for many people this conflict was sort of the the last straw the last drop so they left
0: yeah. yeah okay Jeez. well i feel like that's a story that's happened a number of times in a number of different places but um i suppose yeah now that we kind of have that history and understand <laughs> how a number of people have left the dutch socialist party could you give us a bit of kind of just kind of some information on now what communist platform does now that it's its own entity how it organizes and um kind of what it's what its goals are as it relates to kind of government and political organizing
2: okay so the the main goal is basically to establish a communist party at some point but communist platform itself is not that party it's a bit like cpg pcc is a just a provisionary central committee for a party that should exist at some point. Um, Communist platform is not a party in itself. What it is is basically like an organization that promotes certain views, uh, certain ideas in the leftist movement and it's also mostly oriented towards the leftist movement, people who are already active on the left. So like the criticism we very often get is that our, the text on our website, our lectures, meetings, whatever, they are too theoretically complex for people who are not into politics, but that's also not our goal entirely. Our goal is mostly to reach people who are already active in leftist politics and then give them a certain strategy, like make interventions, what we always say, we make interventions in the workers' movement. So basically everyone who's active for CP will be also, for communist platform, will be also active in the Socialists, for example, which is the new organization we, we're setting up. Uh, Most people expelled from SP. Uh, and the Road, the Youth Organization, and the Trade Unions. like Also, you, technically, we could have people active in other uh, leftist organizations, but uh, as long as it makes any sense, according to our strategies, tactics. But uh, yeah, basically, we, we make interventions based on very sort of strict theoretical vision like the revolutionary strategy vision we also have uh, what we call like a proposal program so it's basically a program for the political party you can find it on our website if you're interested uh, you can also translate it via via google chrome which works very well from dutch to english Uh, and this program we basically spent like a year discussing it writing it Uh, it's like a minimum maximum program so it has certain statements that are sort of our minimum that we would have to agree, we would have that, you know, like if we were to be an actual party, if we want to, the party that we want to start, if this party were to agree to join a government, then these minimum statements would have to be accepted because like, the whole idea of the strategy, also the one that McNair describes in the book, is basically that you only join the government if there's uh, if, if the other parties agree to accept certain policies that would lead to establishing like a workers' republic. And using this workers' republic, you can move on to maximum program to basically move to communism. So, yeah, that's that's our idea. Although I have to say, because like as, as I said, like both communist platform is sort of directed at people who are already active on the left. And also that's what I said about revolutionary Strat- strategy, the book that I feel is extremely clear to read for people who are already active in the movement. At the same time, um, I think it's something that maybe we should discuss more. Is does it actually make sense to reach people who are not yet active in any way? Because that's a that's a discussion that comes back from time to time. Like for example, when we promote the, we have a uh, like a weekend weekend university basically like weekend of lectures that we organize every year with CP, and basically every year we have this discussion: how should we promote it? Because for example last year I said oh should we print like posters flyers whatever and then some of the members of the board were very opposed to it they said you know we we are directing ourselves at the workers movement we want to have discussions with people who are already active basically promote certain tactics among them we are not for people who see our posters somewhere they come from the street you know they won't understand anything they would ask basic questions uh, so we shouldn't print these posters and we end up not printing the posters we end up only including flyers in like we have this uh, friendly uh, leftist uh, web shop with stickers and they just included the flyers in their stickers order. So that, that's that's what happened in the end. Uh, so that's one thing that theoretically is difficult to understand. So maybe we should only be oriented at the workers' movement. But personally, I also think, you know, like w- when you read um, books like McNair Revolutionary Strategy, I think it solves the issue, which is like a very big issue for many people who are interested in leftist politics. But... Or put off from it because they are very anti-capitalist. They believe, okay, we really need to like construct a communist society, but they are they don't really see the way to get there. You know, like the only ways that uh, sort of exist in a like, common conscience, the common imag- imagination, the shared imagination of most people is basically you know like some sort of violent revolution, which is scary and of course would never work nowadays because of like drone armies, etc. Or uh, some sort of like weird mass strikes ideas, which again, as Wagner writes in the book, never lead to anything. So I, I, I think sometimes if you start talking to people, if you present this revolutionary strategy of, you know, like working with a party movement, like building a movement, which is a political party, which is which does participate in the parliamentary elections, but also it's not really the main focus, I think it could be convincing to a lot of people who are not politically active yet Um so yeah, maybe it would make sense to promote these ideas. It is something that we want to do through the more open organizations, like low threshold organizations that we are part of. So the socialists right now and the youth organization. So we try to basically present a version of this revolutionary strategy to a broader group of people. And then what communist platform does is, you know, like um, if you want to become a member, you can sign up for the website. but um, then you join a local group, but then before you become a full member, you have to read a list of texts, uh, discuss them with the, with your sort of buddy, like a person that helps you in this process. You have to basically be trained in being politically active. Uh, so it's, it's quite a, lot of, a big requirement. We also require quite a lot of time. Actually my local communist platform group is having a meeting right now, which is an extra meeting. Oh no. <laughs> And I also told them because uh, the the date was only decided last week. And I basically said, okay, I already made an appointment with someone else. And, you know, like I had a political meeting on Sunday. There was one yesterday. There will be like a reading group tomorrow. It can get overwhelming for people. So that's another issue with the way we function. But we are not with that many and we run a lot of initiatives at the moment. So, yeah, it's difficult.
0: So, could you could you just kind of for people that might not understand, just run through the difference between, say, like a party, a political party, and kind of what communist platform is trying to do, like something like a cadre. Um,
2: well, I mean, you have different types of political parties, but I guess you, I could talk about like the sort of common kind, like the what we like to call in our theoretical texts also party as a brand. So a party which functions, you know, it's mostly there to participate in elections Um, most members are not necessarily active even you know like it's not even really uh, aiming to have a very active party members it's more aiming at functioning as a yeah sort of a brand like with focus groups with uh, promoting itself winning votes in the elections without really having active members Uh, whereas for us, like if you're not active, you can basically support us and donate money, but you're you're not a member, you know? Like if, if, if you're a member of the organization, then you should go to your local meetings twice a month, a local reading group twice a month. And we also have congresses uh, twice a year. Uh, we also have a lot of other initiatives, lectures, uh, education, like, you know, it's, it's it, it can be overwhelming. Uh, it's something that we keep discussing. whole time. Isn't it too overwhelming? How do we split the tasks? Because I think in every organization, you end up with this issue that, you know, like people either do a lot, like really a lot, or they don't do anything. And of course, the sort of sustainable ideal that you want is that you have more people who just have enough tasks, not too much, not too little things to do, which they can do ideal next to their work and studies and so on, family life. Uh, But in reality, that's that's not really what happens. So, yeah, but, but uh, the difference is that you're basically expected to be an active member, and you have certain... Um, you have to pay a uh, like contribution fee from which you run an organization. Um, you uh, are obliged to share your political views with the organization. So basically what that means is that if you disagree about the politics uh, of the organization, you're obliged to voice the disagreement and then we can uh, we basically have a discussion about, and that's to prevent situations in which people disagree, but they feel like they're unable to voice it, or they won't be supported. So then they just keep disagreeing. Maybe discuss with some other people. At some point they will leave without giving the other members the opportunity to either, you know, accept uh, the, the point of uh, the views of the person who wants to leave, or for the person to leave to be convinced that maybe the views of the majority of the time are good. So yeah, but basically that's how we want to support discussion culture also. Like to always- have,
0: have you found that that kind of, that attitude towards differences of opinion allows for more differences of opinion to be voiced? Or do you think that um, at some points has it ever kind of led to people just agreeing because they haven't really wanted to talk about it or something because I know that like in revolutionary strategy one of the things that McNair talks about as being very vital to organizing a party is leaving room for debate and factions and allowing this kind of you know uh differences of opinion to form. So has that kind of been like do people do people disagree a lot I suppose?
2: Well, uh I I don't think people disagree on like big issues of program or strategy or even tactics, you know, that, that, that's, that's quite what I observed in the organization in the last few years, that we have even quite a lot of people who are just members of Road or The Socialists who are not members of Communist Platform itself, who always say, oh, I actually support your politics, but I'm against the way you work, you know, like I'm against the strict discipline that you have, or I don't really like people in your leadership, or you are just too nerdy or too intellectual, you read too much. You know, <laughs> like that, that's, like m- my impression is mostly that the disagreements are about things that are not discussed, but they are not discussed, mostly because if they were discussed, it would like, show how irrational they are. And I'm not saying irrational to say that they are untrue or stupid or whatever, but literally that, irrational, you know, like they are not, if you have a an argument according to reason, then very quickly, you know, these people who are like critical of CP, like former members of car members or people who never were members, they would see that the arguments don't make rational sense. For example, one of the critiques that we had, it was again, again, it wasn't about any like of our political views or strategy or bigger strategy or whatever, but there was a criticism that uh, CP has too much influence in the roles of the youth organization. But at, at the same time, there was a criticism that we don't do enough for road, but instead we do too much for CP itself. Like for example, organizing these lectures that I talk about. That this this is going very well in CP, and we organize this lecture weekend, and people see that, and then they see because road is you know I can start developing organization uh, doesn't have not everything is going great, and people say why don't all these people like put all this energy in road? Why do they hold this basically for their like? stupid intellectual cadre organization, cadre organization, you know. Um, but the reality is, like, if you engage with discussion, it turns out that Rhodes as a organization has an age limit of 28 years, and many people, if not majority, who organize these lectures for CP are actually over this age limit. So even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to organize these lectures for Rhodes. So, like, if you deal with arguments like that, then immediately, it may, you know, they are not rational anymore. But still, people who are in the road, like they just have these feelings and emotions that they're excluded from something. And again, like that's another critique, you know, that you know, you, you if, if you aren't a member of CP, you get excluded in some way. And then we make certain decisions, for example, what we want to do within the road. And then these decisions have influence on this organization, even though they are made partially by people who are not members of road. But then the truth is again, like. If you want to have influence on in these decisions, you are free to join CP, you know, like to um, apply, to be a member, to like read the reading list, whatever. But people just don't do that. So it's, again, irrational in the sense that people are not attracted to the organization, but they don't like that the organization has an influence. So they are very critical of it. Like There are people who just want to fight a communist platform for like no no clear reason other than they perceive it as having too much influence and being too intellectual, whereas they want to organize more actions, which we are very much for, you know? But the problem is people just don't, yeah, I, okay, I don't want to be critical too critical of these people who are criticizing CP. But my main point is that, you know, most conflicts aren't discussed because they're vague and they're just based on emotions, perceptions, something that's discussed between people personally, and the way we want to discuss them is very rational. So we want people to send in articles to our internal bulletin, like to the internal news brief that we uh, internal newsletter that we send around. But in order to write something down, you know, you need to sit down, formulate your arguments. And in many cases, people don't do that, but they just like write in WhatsApp that they disagree. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Like uh, I think it's a problem that's really underestimated by, by a lot of like leftist theories and so on, that these organizations are like living organisms with people who have a lot of their sympathies, antipathies, like motivation to remain active is a very delicate thing. And I, I saw also people demotivated from political activities because they had an argument with someone within the organization, totally not about politics, that also happens. Or the other way around, people who became active only because or mostly because they are friends with someone in the organization, etc. So, yeah, I, I would say it's mostly these things, and it seems like trivial things that happen everywhere. But I, I really don't think they should be they should be underestimated.
0: Yeah. So, so then, how how does Communist Platform approach kind of ideas of coalitions and of well, I suppose so more unity around Marxist ideas or around. Uh, different left-wing ideas in general i mean i know that you have kind of like a professional program and things like that um so in general is there much room for debate i suppose around that or how do you approach ideas of i suppose left unity and marxist unity
2: well we love to be in discussion like to have discussions with other leftists and to uh, have organization campaigns together so for example with this uh, initiative the socialists um, the other leftist organizations, like actual organizations, not just some random people who were active for many years, but organizations involved into it were mostly Trotskyist organizations. So the Mandelites, local Mandelites, are still involved. Then also the local branch of the IMT was involved for quite a long time. And then the people who are still involved actually ended up leaving IMT last summer over the uh, like the sexual abuse scandal that happened in Canada, I think the way it was handled, these people just didn't really accept it, also the way it was discussed in the Dutch branch, so they left, but so we have some Trotskists, ex-Trotskists, and we actually really appreciate having them. Um, Like, we can disagree with them, of course, but, you know, like, what we value the most is if they uh, have their arguments, you know, if they, again, like, we value the most if they participate in the discussion, and uh, a big issue last summer was uh, the issue of the war in Ukraine. And there you, you saw basically like these two Trotskyist organizations within the socialist project, having extremely opposed views on that. So we had the, the Mandelites were actually supporting sending weapons uh, by NATO to Ukraine, whereas uh, the ex-IMTers were ex imters were extremely, extremely against uh, any sort of uh, support for any armed actions in the region. Uh, very critical of NATO as an imperialist organization, etc. So this led to very harsh discussions uh, with CP being ideologically on the like firmly anti-NATO, anti-imperialist side. Um, But still in the discussions, like we saw our tone, for example, the way that we defended our arguments being much more mild than how people from XIMT did that. So yeah I, I I would say that, that that's how we try to uh, engage in these discussions and I don't know if I said it, said it clearly enough, but of course happens to, when it comes to campaigns and uh, trade unions etc whatever we'll collaborate with any leftist or even non- leftist organization if we agree with the idea with the goal of the campaign um,
1: I'm wondering whether um communist platform um have any specific theories around the development of a communist party in um, the Netherlands. But obviously, Mike McNair wrote, as you've, as you've already explained, sort of Mike McNair wrote revolutionary strategy to talk to the left in a, as the name of uniting um, left parties um, so that the a sort of more united left could then uh, speak more clearly to the organized working class, I suppose. Um, but you've also talked about how a communist platform came about because it won it saw in its when it was founded it saw the sort of socialist um party as being quite integral to its theory around uh its political it's that sort of activism I suppose its involvement in politics. Um so I suppose one, like how how has that transition gone from orientating towards socialist the socialist party toward being a cadre in sort of a, a strategic terms, I suppose. Is it a strategic question? Uh, and then to yeah, how do you envisage like developing toward a communist party in the Netherlands? Yeah. If that is the uh, okay, first I will
2: response. say what I just forgot, and then I'll come back to your question. Then, so what I forgot was to say was that um, there are a lot of um, nominally far left groups which refuse to collaborate with us, or rather, they ignore us, especially the Trotskyists from the IS International Socialists, which is. The Dutch branch of SWP in the UK, if I'm not extremely confused, but I'm pretty sure that's them. Um, so they will organize a lot of like front organizations, events, whatever, and they don't really like us being there. And uh, they organize some sort of like climate coalition Utrecht. They didn't like SP being involved in it. They don't like CP being involved in it. What they like is basically people who are like from these big liberal parties like Hoenlings, uh Green Left, uh, part, Labour Party in the Netherlands coming to their events and then the Trotskyists from IS um, having the illusion that they're making them more radical. Yeah, but they, they don't... Like, even when... Um, with this new initiative, the socialists, were participating in municipal elections because basically we're expelled in the middle of these elections. We decided to still participate. These Trotskists didn't even, on their social media or official website, like, uh, encourage people to vote for us. So, yeah, they're, they're just really... Not supportive at all. So, and of course, the like the local Stalinists aren't supportive, but you know, like you could expect it. And we have also arguments with anarchists all the time, which anarchists start, which is really annoying. But it's also like mostly anarchism of uh, arguments of anarchists with youth wing road. They're very stupid. Like they put uh, stickers of their own organizations over our stickers, etc. It's uh, low level arguments, not really political discussions. Okay. uh, Then Dan's question, like, how do we envision the, like, do we have a strategy? Do we have an approach? Well, that's the problem because that's something that we have to formulate ourselves. Like McNair won't write it for us because he doesn't really know the situation in the Netherlands that well. Um, Or, you know, like, even if he could, I think we, we know the organization, we, we know the situation in Netherlands better. And that's basically what we are always Um, What we're always doing, like we always try to evaluate the current political situation and how can we reach our goal, which is this party movement, like explicitly anti-capitalist, communist in nature. And the problem is that, you know, uh, as we are aware, we don't have much time in the sense that, you know, climate change is happening. And of course, you want to end human suffering because of capitalism as soon as we can. So we have this whole idea of revolutionary patience with which also revolutionary strategy ends. But at the same time, you know, like if you look at the situation in Netherlands, you have to be very patient. And it's it's very difficult, you know, because you have to keep reminding yourself that we have to start slowly build up the movement. So in the current situation, as I said, we are active in this project, The Socialist, which is not even a party yet, started mostly by... People expelled from the SP, uh, different, uh, as I said, some Trotskyists, this type of groups. Um, Ideologically, we think it's the the purest, like sort of more mass organization, not a small cadre organization like CP. So that's why we're active within it. But it's it's just very few people, you know. Um, And there were people who already wanted to announce that we are a party, like the Socialists are a party. We're very against it. Uh, in the end, we reached a compromise that we made a set of conditions that have to be met before we announced the socialists to be a party. Involve uh, conditions like we have to have at least 10 active local branches. We have to agree on certain programmatic points, etc. Uh, these conditions are not met at the moment. We're also active in the, world, the youth movement. It used to be the SPI youth movement. Now it's like a openly radical youth movement. So that's what we are doing. But... Um, Again, you know, like, how how could we reach this Communist Party? We would basically have to keep attracting many, many, many more people to these organizations we already have. And these people would have to become class-conscious and emancipate themselves. And so that's what we're doing. Um, We're just, you know, it's an uphill battle every day. We don't have our own media. Uh, It was a super interesting experience, what I just mentioned, participating in the municipality elections as the socialists because my only experience with Dutch elections was with SP, which was a national existing party which got a lot of media attention because of that and then suddenly we had to run local elections without an office, without money, without any media attention and you just see how difficult it is even in a small country like the Netherlands. It's, it's almost impossible to get through with your message even though you know, like, in the end, we did convince, like, many more people that we had initially to our ideas that were very radical program which wanted, like, you know, 70% social housing in the new-built bu- new uh, buildings or whatever, like, very extreme <laughs> for what's happening right now. Um, yeah, so that's the plan. The plan is that we just do the inter- interventions in the workers' movement where we think they have the highest chance to succeed. And it's still very difficult, and we're not... Like succeeding in any spectacular spectacular way, but it's better than any of the alternatives, which is like mass strike, you know, mass strike, like tiny anarchist actions, or uh, coalitions with liberals bourgeois parties. So yeah, that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I also think just to speak to that, I think that there is definitely um, well, obviously, there's wisdom in building a. An organization that's ideologically coherent because it builds trust. um, Basically, whether some people in the working class agree with you or not, it will build trust, right? Because you always stick to your guns, you always say and do exactly what you mean. You never change from it. Like one of the main reasons I think that people are suspicious of, say, like a Labour Party, people who don't vote. I mean, people like something like a Labour Party or the Socialist Party is because they hear all of this hubbub about socialism and about you know getting past capitalism. But then when it comes down to it, they form coalitions and they do this and they do that. And so it's like, yeah, if you were just like regular working class schmuck, like why would you trust them? right? Like there would be no reason to. So there is definitely, um, yeah, there's reason to, even if it feels a bit like kind of just like a slog, you know, there's a reason to kind of always be ideologically coherent if for no other reason than just build trust and to make people trust you, right? And when these moments of kind of like economic, um, Uh, turbulence come along or social or political turbulence, the ideas will suddenly look better to people if they're suspicious about them beforehand, I think.
2: Well, I'm not even sure if that will happen because, I mean, this already happened, right, with, like, many crises, with the economic crisis 2008, with the corona crisis, with, like, many chances for people to turn to the true left with our right ideas and so on. But I, I really think we just have to keep trying... Especially, I think what's important is to get the message across. So, like, try it through independent media, social media, things like you're doing the podcast. Like, maybe something will work, like one of these things. But as I said, it's like a constant struggle. You know, it's like an uphill battle every day because uh, there are just so many new forms of media and entertainment invented every day, like technology, etc., which compete for people's attention. So. Yeah,
0: I, I appreciate saying that we're somehow Dan and I involved in the class struggle by sitting here reading our books every week and talking well, I, about them I, to I ourselves. Mean,
2: in a way you are. I, th- I think there are quite, you know, like there's, there's quite a big network of these leftist podcasts right now. I think that's good.
0: Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it's not like we're engaged in this project really at all right now, but I think one of the main things that will need to happen for a successful workers movement is building our own media. And mm. obviously like that, creates its own set of challenges because it's like where is the working class going to get like enough server space to run its own media and stuff like that but problems for another day i think that independent media and stuff like that is obviously important
2: yeah we have our own initiatives we have a podcast in touch of course associated with the communist platform but the problem that we keep running into is that we just don't have enough people for all of this. so that's what i touched upon before you know like uh, the, the amount of things I myself do next to a full-time job and like trying to have some sort of like time to just rest and like enjoy sport or culture it's uh, you, it's basically impossible to do almost like we have a lot of people who are burned out we have a lot of people who work part-time we don't have almost any members with small children you know that's, that's actually quite a weird feature of dutch politics that everyone is either very young like in their 20s or quite old like uh, retired and where are the people in their like late 30s and 40s that almost not there uh, and it's very symptomatic i think for me something that i actually want to also research in the future like as a researcher but also want like i keep thinking about it every day is how do we manage to keep building this movement uh, every day with everything that we have to do as people who are just functioning in this capitalist economy. And I have to say, there are a lot of people in the communist platform who made at some point the sort of conscious decision okay, I, like this is my life, I dedicate myself to the struggle, so I'm not going to go for like a very ambitious career, I'm going to decide to work part time. Like, I have friends who decided to work part time to basically have time for their political tasks, but you know, like it's not really something that we can expect from everyone it's not something that i myself am doing i always try to like both have some sort of like starting scientific career and at the same time do all these political things uh, yeah. i i wouldn't really tell people they should do that but
0: yeah, yeah. Well, i mean that's one of the parts that's in revolutionary strategy right is and he kind of i mean it's difficult to have working class people Run your working class organizations when they're working class and have to work, right? And the way that McNair gets around it, I bit a bit, I suppose, is by saying that you need to basically pay people to do this. You need to pay people to be, uh, you know, part of the party and to run it like it is a job and to be disciplined. And the only way to do that is to pay people. But it's like, okay, where are you going to get that money? You know.
2: Yeah, that's that's one thing. So while well, we don't have the money yet, like we're trying to find. A party office, like office space for the party in Central Netherlands, and we don't even really can't even really afford that. Um But also, like, after all the experiences with SP, I, I'm a bit worried of these paid party members becoming bureaucratic and very interested in upholding the status quo, you know, just making sure that the party stays as it is, That they basically, they protect their interest their income being from from a party or organization being in a certain position more than they are critical of the course of the organization i think that's a very real danger
0: yeah yeah of course <laughs> i mean you find ossification like that everywhere right in terms of parties and it's but again it's like the you know it's tricky because again the alternative is if you don't pay people then you're going to actually kind of wind up attracting non-working class people people who are able to kind of you know, not work full time because, I don't know, they're trust fund people or something like that. And they, it's, they just organize on a whim because they're interested in it. Whereas at least in organizing circles that I'm in, I've found that people whose like material livelihoods um, are threatened by circumstances, right, um, tend to be the ones who are the best at organizing. Um, and obviously, I you know, I don't know, it's it's a very tricky line to draw. Where do you do it? it's because it seems like you're damned one way or the other but obviously you want to be able to have a dedicated core group of people so you
2: know yeah well like one of the solutions that i can describe or they could imagine in very vague terms is that of course like if you i'm not sure if it's described in detail in revolutionary strategy but if you read a bit around on the weekly worker the cosmonaut magazine and so on you have this whole idea of the party movement which wouldn't be only the political party but also associated with it like cultural initiatives sport initiatives etc like when we talk about the life that we have outside of work that we have to do to survive basically um then you have things like that you know like you have culture sport and of course it's like especially in recent decades it's more and more individualized by capitalism that you know like suddenly cultural consumption is not really going to a concert or even local cinema or whatever, it's really like sitting at home watching Netflix. But still, like, we have a number of initiatives, which again, we don't have enough people to run in the Netherlands, which do exactly that, like try to organize uh, sport activities together. So for example, last weekend, we went bouldering with a couple of people associated with the socialist sport organization. And I think that, that could be a way, you know, that you sort of remain involved in leftist politics even in if in your free time, and of course I can see people being very critical of this um uh, you know, if you look at this from starting from a very liberal neoliberal liberal mindset, you say like "Oh whoa, like so I'm expected to not only be politically active but also in my free time like do sports with people I know from politics or like go to concerts with people I know from politics, but in reality, you know why not and I think it can be also a way to. Like politicize all these issues which are now falsely presented as apolitical. Like if you look at any sort of cultural industry, if you look at let's say music, you know, like you see this huge financialization of everything. Like you have I either huge bands, like you have the whole ticketmaster fiasco with people not being able to pay for the tickets, or you have local bands which are cheap and accessible but they're struggling all the time. Like if we make all these issues political, I think it could be very strong and also making it easier for people to participate in politics because suddenly it won't be only this thing that's attractive to people like me, you know, who actually like going to long meetings, which are political discussions about very concrete strategy or issues or whatever, but also attractive to many people who just like going to a concert or who like cooking together or growing vegetables. Like all these issues can be political in a way, um, but you need People with enough class consciousness, with enough awareness of what's happening to actually make them political and create an environment in which you can work on these issues in solidarity and not be alienated by the capitalist way in which they're organized right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I couldn't agree more. I think that obviously a large part of organizing is giving people kind of alternatives to capitalist structures and the things that they're interested in. And just on a much more practical level, like exactly what you're saying, going to concerts, going bouldering, and doing stuff like that, that builds social bonds um, a lot more than, well, in certain cases than like talking about theory, right? Um, they yeah. obviously, they all have their own place and you kind of, it's difficult to kind of compare the two, but building social bonds is an extremely important part of organizing.
2: Yeah. Although I think you have to also be careful because as I said, like we had situations in which people had like personal arguments between friends and then they influenced your activity in the movement. You have to remember like, you don't have to be personal friends with everyone in your local group or whatever. Um, it's, it's okay. If, if they are sort of your comrades, you know, like, of course there will be personal friendships or relationships or whatever, Forming when you have people doing whatever together, um, but uh, I think this idea of comradeship and like having initiatives on which we work on together, not for monetary interest, and also not because we are necessarily family or friends. I think this is very like a very powerful idea, you know. That um, like for example, for me through politics, I met a lot of people with very different lifestyles or careers or a different moments of their life normally, well, maybe i keep talking about these issues because I'm a sociologist, but normally if you look at people's friend groups, like you tend to be friends with, or like you tend to be partner up with people who are extremely similar to you. Like they have similar jobs, similar education, similar income, whatever. So then your view of the society is very limited, but the moment you join a any sort of volunteer group actually, um, but especially political organizations, you're exposed to issues of people from different demographics. I, I think that can also be very powerful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think we've taken up enough of your time. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you have anything else you want to ask um, before we go. I
1: have nothing to ask, um, only to offer thanks for yeah, speaking to her for so long and uh, yeah giving us so many of your insights. It's been really fascinating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I feel much more illuminated on Dutch politics now which was not before this. So that's good.
2: I actually regret a bit. Maybe regret is the wrong word, but because I hope it's interesting, both for you and for the listeners of the podcast, like the whole Dutch context, because for me, the very interesting discussion started at the end, basically, like after I explained the whole Dutch context, which I know because that's the context I'm active in. And then we reached like the issues of organizing and uh, keeping people active and whatever in this context. I think that's very fascinating. But, But yeah, the Dutch context itself, I hope it was interesting to you. Maybe you found some parallels with your local situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to have you back on again sometime to talk more about revolutionary strategy and some more things like that, and to get an update on coming's platform and how everything's going i mean i think we both wish you the best of luck with all of your organizing and um yeah that isn't just personal i think we'd like to see coming's platform succeed so let's hope so